I tell you what, this would actually be a great message for the podcast. If anyone out there can think of a great name for a business that allows someone to go and shadow their dream job before they jump in and, and, and commit to 25 grand's worth of retraining or a university degree or whatever it is, um, please let me know. I'm very open-minded to a different name, <laughs> a name change for the business. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Hub podcast. This is your host, Agnes Uheretsky. And today I have a very special guest joining me from London, and it's Lucy Standing. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Agnes. Very good to hear you all or to, to be online with everybody today. Well, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. Maybe just as a bit of a background for listeners, we met in April 2018 in London at the Work 2.0 conference, where Lucy gave a presentation that had a huge impact on me. And so I'm very happy that you accepted Lucy to come on the podcast and we will delve into these areas during this conversation. And just as a way of introduction, Lucy is a chartered occupational psychologist. She has about 20 years of experience working for large corporates as in-house consultants and now as a freelancer and social entrepreneur. Lucy is the vice chair of ABP, which is the Association for Business Psychology. And she's also the founder of ViewVo, and we'll discuss all of that in a moment. But before we do that, may I ask you, Lucy, to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your journey, your passion? What is it that gets you up in the morning? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, Agnes. That was a lovely introduction. Um, my, my background is really I've always been fascinated by people and I love working with people. That's definitely what gets me up in the day. Um, employer, employers can get away with a lot with me if I've got a great team around me. I do a lot of my work with the ABP is entirely for free. I do that voluntarily just simply because I'm very passionate about the journey of um, making psychology more available to everybody. Um, I'm also really quite passionate about good practice. So I see lots of bad practice in the HR world. And for me, it's important that if ever I'm involved with sharing content or helping people understand what it is that they can do more effectively in their organization, that that's actually based on science and research and evidence that these things work, as opposed to, um, I think sometimes there's a lot of bad practice out there that's involved in really just trying to sell content using quite extraordinary claims and maybe slapping neuro in front of something to make it sound slightly more pseudoscientific. Um, so I've always been passionate in this world. My background is I'm, you know, I've always sort of, I've worked in the kind of corporate sector. I used to run graduate recruitment for a company called Chase Manhattan Bank, which actually acquired JP Morgan. Um, and then I was a global head of recruitment at a strategy consulting firm called LEK Consulting. And then I worked um, in consultancy myself. So I, exactly as you said, then went around a number of larger corporates. And I loved all of that. I've always loved any job that I've done in this field. The reason I stopped doing it is because I started having children. And the reality is that when you are 
breastfeeding and when you've got young children that you need to spend time with and who need you that actually a, a consultancy lifestyle where I was often away from home maybe three or four nights in a row just didn't really work in combination with the young children aspect and so I kind of very much took the view that my work is very much something I can do from home um, and so yes I decided to go freelance and I haven't really looked back since. Well thank you very much for for this great introduction and I have to pick up on something that you said in the beginning, this pseudoscience, um, you know, these um, five things to do before breakfast and, you know, the five things, a lot of it is is um, clickbait and informs a lot of the decisions. And, and it's quite often that I speak here also on the podcast about the fact that there's a really big gap between research evidence and practice and that and that it just doesn't filter in into the, you know, we have so much evidence now, we have so much knowledge in the research realm, but it just simply is not filtering in into practice. Yes, you're absolutely right. And it's one of my huge frustrations, which is which is really why I continue to work with the ABP. I just, you know, it, it, it's definitely a love journey. It's not for anything else other than that. That's very much the driving force is, you know, trying to get best practice out there for people. Now, when you were giving your presentation at, at WorkPoint 2.0, you started and framed it in this um, general understanding that people are a lot of people are not that happy at work, that they are disengaged. And what I quite uh, I was quite impressed with, because that's something that has been also, you know, bugging me for a while, is that then you didn't start speaking about all the things employers can do to foster engagement, but taking a step back and looking at the mismatch between the work people do or are asked to do and their interests, their skills and their passion. And so why do you think there are so many people in jobs that are not for them? Well, I mean, I, I largely think it's, I mean, it's a combination of a, of a range of different things. But if we start at the beginning, at no point in any of our education are we ever really that informed about how skills we learn at school actually translate to the world of work. If I think about my education, you know, I spent, I busted a gut doing and studying a range of GCSE subjects that I have literally never, ever used or applied in any way, shape or form in the real world. Um, so when you leave university or, or sorry, when you leave school and university, we are remarkably ill-equipped to understand anything about how anything that we've learned really translates to the world of work. So the reality for most people is you then start to go down the career journey without having any real idea. You know, you probably go for something that's convenient, that might be quite local. A large number of the time, it's probably something that your parents have very much strongly influenced you to do. And, and, and then you've got the other combination of just which other organizations are the ones who are actually even going to say yes. And so you start you start going down a road without really questioning it, without necessarily thinking about it. And then and then I guess you've got the other element, which is a huge amount of our behavior is very much dictated by the social norms around us. So, you know, if I if I live in an area amongst a social group of people and the norm is everyone hates their job, they all begrudge it, everyone just goes along, it's something you have to get through, then it, to a degree that's my expectation. So I think a lot of the time expectations are not necessarily that work is going to be something that we really enjoy, it's just something that you do as a means to an end. 
Mm, absolutely. And I think you mentioned something in your presentation back then, which was about ownership over one's career, ownership over one's learning over. And perhaps we have given up so much of this ownership to our employers, to whoever is going to have us. Yeah, you're right. And I think a lot of that is it's partly we give that ownership up but it's it's also because that's perpetuated a lot of the time by the employer so if you think about you know if we start from the position of recruitment you know you as the employee are ultimately the person who decides whether or not that job is right for you however the recruitment approach is very much one where you know, the employer considers that they are the best person to make that decision. Um, so they will be the one to offer you a job, yes or no. Now, if you get offered that job, you very much are the person who has the power because maybe you'll not be as engaged in that job because maybe it's not entirely right for you. And maybe you'll leave three months later or a year later. Um, maybe you'll take plenty of sick leave. So the reality is that the employee actually has a lot more power in terms of that recruitment interaction, but it's very much the case that the employer doesn't give that employee the opportunity to make a better and more informed decision. Um, you know, the way that it's done, the way the interaction is done, I mean, half the time, an employee doesn't even really know what an employer is asking for. You know, it's, it's quite clandestine, it's quite secretive. They don't really tell you what questions they'll be asking in advance. Um, they're, they're not necessarily telling you exactly what it is that they're looking for. You'll be lucky if any of the time you'll actually get any detailed feedback as to why you haven't got that job. So it's it's very much felt as though the hands have played very much from one area, from one angle, and not from the other. And then and then it's perpetuated. So when somebody actually then joins the organisation, um, the employer usually takes the angle of thinking, well, this is the training and this is the development that you need. These are the things you're allowed to learn. And if you were to come and say to me, look, I really want to do this. I think it's going to be important for my career. Half the time, the employer will vet that and filter it through. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's really worth it for your job. Don't know if we can justify that expense. And so, you know, a lot of the time, that this sort of sense of ownership is very much perpetuated by the employer kind of giving the impression that you don't have any ownership over any of it. You know, they'll invest in pensions for you. Um, indicate when and when you can't have holiday, how you need to be in the office, how much how much time you need to be there for, how present you need to be. Um, it's very often the things that are measured and not necessarily the things that generate higher performance. Absolutely. And, and so what are the consequences then for organizations and perhaps even for the individual if, if we're in this mismatched uh, situation, in this unbalanced situation of ownership and and choice and and power so i mean the reality is these things are always quite hard to quantify in the same way that if i was to say i really love my children it's hard for me to put on a scale how much i do love them you know to a degree a lot of what we're talking about in this field and i think this is partly the reason why psychology gets a bit of a bad name um is because a lot of what we're talking about is actually very difficult to measure um, however, if we were to look at it from the point of view of what, what is the absolute worst case scenario, well, your worst case scenario is people doing a job that they absolutely hate, that they're completely ill-equipped for. Um, and that can result in all sorts of things. So complete breaches of, 
you know, the kind of the behavior that's expected right through to trading, having no integrity to do the job you're doing, trading pension funds, bankrupting businesses. But the reality is most of the time, the mismatch is probably just a case of an opportunity cost. So, you know, if I, if I'm, if, if you're a business, for example, that's selling luxury holidays, you know, someone who's okay might sell something like £20,000 worth of luxury holidays a week, whereas someone who's really good might sell something like 25000 but that difference of 5,000 a week over, you know, compounded over the course of a year is something like 260,000 pounds a year. And that's just in the opportunity cost. So very often it's it's not what what's necessarily bad. It's what's better that has been missed because you've gone for someone that's that seemed like an OK fit in the interview, but actually isn't really the right person for that job at all. Absolutely. And I think that um, that's where I also find the most difficult to approach and convince employers that they need to do something to improve because they're not going bankrupt. They're chugging along just fine because it's they don't see this missed opportunity. They don't see this this gap, this, this potential that is still there that they could reach if, you know, staff were invested, if they would bring their whole selves, their whole energy to work. Yes, yes. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you'll get finance managers and, and, and people that will consider, right, well, we can either invest this money in, you know, buying retail, and then we'll get a particular return, or we can stick it, stick it into bonds, and we get a particular return. So actually, the mentality of being able to consider what kind of return you'll get on your investment is is there, we are quite trained to do it. But we're just not really trained to do it from the point of view of considering what better kind of human resources are out there that we could be looking at and and probably hr is not that equipped and not sitting at the table to make these counter arguments yeah i i think i do think that's right i mean i think we'll probably come on to it later but um i certainly think that the hr the hr community does need to step up a bit Mm. so one of the things that um, you also wrote a white book about a white paper about interviews and CVs, and that's a particular pet peeve for you. <laughs> and 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 I think it's it's a, it's a fascinating subject that you know ninety nine percent of recruitment is still done based on job descriptions or or qualifications and CVs and interviews. And and you're very adamant about saying this does not work and. Employers are not measuring at all whether this works or not. Tell us a little bit about this. Yeah. So, I mean, the reality is, is that so? I mean, just for the UK, I don't, I don't really know the numbers so much for the um, for Europe. But just in the UK alone, seventy six percent of employers go down the route of asking for a CV or an application form. Then they do an interview based on that CV or application form. And then at the end of that interview, they make an offer about whether or not that person can do that job. So that's 76% of the time. Um, and if you ask, if you, if you then evaluate, you know, how many of these people are actually doing any kind of real evaluation as to whether or not that works, the only evaluation they will do typically is one of how quick is that process? So how, how fast is the time to hire? Um, and how much is that costing us? But that's pretty much it. So, you know, the looking at whether or not the people who may score higher on an interview actually score higher in the job or are producing more in the job several years down the line 
is such a basic thing to be able to do, but it's not something that anyone is typically doing. It is done in the academic world, and the results of this are shared quite um, certainly publicly. It's it, you know this is no secret. But if you do analyse that kind of research and look at the difference, or sorry, or, or kind of look at the pre. So that, that kind of interview score and then look at the post, so their performance several years down the line. An interview does an incredibly poor job of predicting who's going to do well in the future. So when I used to work in investment banking, for example, I used to face the, the kind of the constant, I guess, ego um, that managing directors felt that they could spot an investment banker the minute they walked in through the door. And the reality is they couldn't, you know, what they could spot was someone who was probably white male, confident and well-dressed because they, it becomes a very kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where people believe they know what they're looking for and then they tend to hire in their own image. And it, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just an incredibly bad process. You know, if you think about the fact that when you are potentially marrying someone or thinking about date, you know, mar you know, settling down with someone and moving in with them, it isn't done because you've looked at a CV. It's done because you've spent a lot of time with that person through several dates. Um, if you think about the fact that when you're going to buy a house, you probably wouldn't do it just because you've read something about the description details and the floor plans. You know, you actually want to physically go and walk around it and actually see what it's like for yourself. Um, and these are these are sorts of you know the opportunity to try and experience something before you do it makes so much more sense. Um, so I'm I'm a strong advocate of doing things like internships and doing things like you know work experience beforehand because I think they're much stronger ways of empowering not necessarily the employer but certainly the employee to make a much better decision for themselves about what's right for them. I don't, I don't say this because I think it's a nice thing to do. I say that because that's what the research shows. Um, if I think about my own experience, I introduced internships at Chase and towards the end of the summer, I mean, bearing in mind that these are very, very small sample sizes, but, you know, we'd take on about 30 interns, we'd make job offers to about 20 of them. And out of those 20, quite often, several of them would say, thank you for the offer, but I never want to work in investment banking ever again. And that's because they'd experienced it and knew for themselves that that was not the right environment for them. And so, you know, that kind of process is is so vital. But over the course of someone's career, I mean, I know there are no jobs for life now, but when someone can then be in your organization for five, 10 years, the salaries, the training costs, the contributions to pensions, national insurance, that cost mounts up hugely. Absolutely. So um, you have uh, founded a startup, which is called... Vuvo, and it's about job shadowing for recruitment purposes, for people wanting to change careers, for women who are returning from a career break, or women who are maybe doubting themselves that they could be taking on a leadership position. So how did this come about and, and how does this work? Um, yeah, so it's you're absolutely right. It stands for View of Vocation. So Vuvo is really because the the research evidence is incredibly compelling that kind of indicates. So if we if we look at how recruitment decisions get made, it kind of coming back to the thing I was saying before. Too often, um, the power position is with the employer, whereas by giving the employee an opportunity to experience something first you're giving them a much better opportunity to self-select themselves into the job, which is really the element that's completely missing at the moment um, from many, many recruitment processes. So 
if I if I think about how then you know that background, how I how I've integrated that into the platform, it's simply a case of I go out and I contact people who are brilliant in their job. So not just average people, but people who've got incredible reputations for the areas that they work in. So anything from being an architect through to being a book author, through to being, you know, a coffee shop owner. You know, anywhere, anyone who I have on my site is someone that I've personally vetted. And these are, the, I guess the key thing is that these are people who understand that they need to be there, they need to be supportive for people. So let's say someone is considering becoming an architect, they can go and spend three half days with a firm of architects doing everything from working on site and understanding how projects are managed on site to spending a day in the office and seeing what kind of tools and software packages are used, how the how the team all interact with each other. But then there's also a client meeting as well. So understanding the brief, how you get the work, or sorry, how how you ask questions from the client, how that then follows up into a proposal um, for work. And and so by by the time you've kind of experienced these sort of key elements of the job, you can start to make a more informed choice as to whether or not that's right for you. And, and what I'm finding is about 35% of the time, somebody goes and jo- does that job for a day and leaves thinking, thank God I don't do that job. And this can even be off the back of several months of planning and, um, yeah, several months of planning. Dreaming, of dream- no, or imagining, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, I think probably my favorite, I've got two good stories. One of a, a private equity partner who felt he wanted to run a brewery. He went and did it for a day and then realized there was no way in hell he wanted to run a brewery. Um, and another guy who sold his business and thought he wanted to run a boutique hotel up in the Lake District. And he went and did it, did it for a day and, again, felt there was absolutely no way he wanted to run a hotel. But then, so that's the sort of the 35% of the time. But then about 65% of the time, and this is a thing that's really interesting, it's mainly women. Um, about 65% of the time, the women go and do a job and then at the end of it think, why on earth have I left it so long? You know, the job itself is not that hard What's hard is not knowing. So when you have no idea what's involved in running, whether it's a sex, you know, a successful floristry business, or whether it's being a mediator as part of a larger team, or whether it's being a solicitor in a in a firm solicitors, any of these sorts of roles, when you actually go and do it and experience it for a day, you realize that so many of the skills that you have are transferable. The knowledge, of course, the knowledge is unique. Um, but that's the easy bit. You know, picking up knowledge is very simple. I can explain the rules of tennis to you and it will, I can explain them to you in five minutes. So the knowledge bit and understanding how to play tennis is simple. Understanding how to be a great player and having the skill to be a great player takes a lot, lot, lot longer to develop. And so people always overestimate the knowledge. So if you look at any job application process, it usually stipulates a certain number of years of experience in that sector. And that's a vast overestimation of what they really should be looking for. Um, trying to match the skills up with the job is far more far more predictive of who's actually going to do really well in it. But I also think that there's probably still a relatively big confusion in the minds of hiring managers or, you know, who are not professional recruiters to differentiate what is a knowledge and what is a skill. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. And I and I think that any anything that's kind of networking based or relationship based, you know, any anything that kind of requires that someone has to come into that job having an established network and a community of people that they can bring in. So any kind of business development role. Um, those sorts of things 
very typical um, that you would see behind the requirement for having a large number of years of experience. But the reality is someone who is proactive and reasonably extroverted um, and interested in that role will develop that network and those contacts very, very quickly if they were given half an opportunity to do so. Mm, fantastic. Before we go on to the last question, may I ask you, Lucy, to share with listeners where and how they can find out more about your work and, and, and Vivo and, and how they could get in touch with you? Yes, of course. So, I mean, e my email address is lucy at vivo.com and I'll spell Vivo because it's exactly the same as our website. So it's V-I-E-W-V-O and it's, it's, it's like that partly because it stands for view a vocation. Um, but it's also like that because in all honesty, when I tried to think of a name for a business that involved shadowing a range of different jobs, I honestly couldn't come up with anything better. <laughs> <laughs> and any, any other name that I could come up with had been registered on Twitter or maybe it had already gone on Facebook or maybe it had already been registered by somewhere in Taiwan or goodness knows what. Trying to come up with a company name. I tell you what, this would actually be a great message for the podcast. If anyone out there can think of a great name for a business that allows someone to go and shadow their dream job before they jump in and, and, and commit to 25 grand's worth of retraining or a university degree or whatever it is, um, please let me know. I'm very open-minded to a different name, <laughs> a name change for the business. Excellent. So there you go, dear listeners. Um, try to, to grab a pen and paper and do your brainstorming and uh, help this founder out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, if, it, if it helps, they can then have a free phone call. Excellent. <laughs> Now, um, coming to the last question, which is always the same here on the podcast, which is we're trying to get our clever and inspiring guests to give advices to senior managers or team leaders or senior executives. So if I could ask you an advice that would be kind of for you the top priority, the most important thing they would need to focus on or change right now, what, what would be your message? Um, I would definitely ask them to consider what skills they're hiring in for their HR department, because I do think that how, how, how a company performs is very centrally tied up with the people that work in that business. And I do believe at the moment that HR, the HR skills based skills base is lacking a huge amount of the kind of the evidence-based approach that I would like to see more people using. So I'm often disheartened when I go to conferences or when I'm speaking to people about the questions that get asked. You know, very often what drives someone in an, in an HR function is what other companies are using this? Um, how much does it cost? I'm not necessarily seeing a lot of people saying, okay, we're going to do a a bit of a trial where we'll look at the results before and after. We're going to control for a couple of variables. Um, you know, there are hundreds of master's courses across the UK that need and will happily work with organizations and would be supervised by professors. You know, the opportunity to actually get some real data and to analyze the impact of things before they're actually widely put in place is, is certainly there and it's certainly available and it's available for free. Um, I, I just believe that actually at the moment, so much of what drives a lot of business decisions is not necessarily that well informed. It's, it's certainly not that well evaluated. You know, it's, it's very much um, 
you know, it's it's almost the result of good sales as opposed to the result of really insightful thinking. Yeah, and I, and I definitely also see a, a risk there with with a lot of the cloud-based HR solutions or the AI-powered HR solutions that maybe will get layered on top of not very good practice or not very evidence-based practice in the first place. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, you've got potential for all sorts of things to go wrong and it's actually not that difficult to consider what are we actually wanting to improve? How are we going to demonstrate that? What are the measures that we're gonna take? Um, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of moving away from things like performance management, which don't get me wrong, I actually quite like. I'm not, I'm certainly not wedded to a really in-depth, laborious performance management process. But when it gets to a point where actually nothing's being measured, then that makes me feel nervous as well. Because I think any, unless you can demonstrate any improvement to anything, it's, um, well, it just starts to become opinion and, um, the person with the loudest voice or the most charismatic or who is most articulate will probably be the person that carries the vote and carries what actually happens as opposed to good practice and good science and you know evidence that things are working and 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 half the time that those skills don't necessarily exist because they're not even specified you know it's very rare that if you know if you ever see a job description for a lot of people that might work in hr there's nothing that says ability to demonstrate an evidence-based approach well Thank you so much. I think that you have shared really generously so much of your knowledge with the listeners and so much of your insight. And it has been a really fascinating conversation. So I thank you so much, Lucy, for taking the time. And I really wish you the best of success with your work and Vuvo and that it takes off and and it will become a standard practice for recruiters and, and people searching for jobs alike. Thank you, Agnes. I've really enjoyed it. It's lovely talking to you. You're a fantastic podcast host. <laughs>